The scripture comes from John chapter 6. In verse 47 it begins, Very truly I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. The Word of the Lord. Thank you, Kevin. Happy Easter. It's great to see all the happy faces and the promise of spring and sunshine. Christianity hangs on two great pegs, two pillars, if you will. Christmas and Easter. One is a descent. Christmas celebrates God becoming man, descending and becoming one of us, the word becoming flesh. Easter is the ascent from the pit of death returning to the Father. But of the two, Easter is the key because it has the great central promise of Christianity that death is not the end, that there is more to existence than this short material life. The Apostle Paul, writing to a church of new Christians that he had planted, wrote this to them. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope, we have hope in Christ, we of all people should be pitied. If there's just one life that ends in death, our faith is futile. If Christ was not resurrected, if he did not after three days rise from the grave, then we are foolish people and gathered here this morning. We're idiots. Now, pastors typically in Easter have two kinds of sermons. One is to try to convince you that it happened. The other is to explain what it means if it did happen. And I'm going to focus on that second kind of sermon. But you should be aware, what you believe about Easter is the absolute key to everything. Look at our verses here, verse 47. Very truly, I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. Very truly, I tell you. This is a, was a characteristic of Jesus' teaching. It's really a translation of the word that is often said, Amen. It was the practice in the synagogues that when a teacher said something true, the congregation would affirm that truth by saying, Amen. 
What you just said is true. We agree with you. That's God's word you just spoke. But Jesus never spoke that way. Jesus gives his own amen. And wherever you see in the Bible, very truly I tell you, or truly I tell you, he's actually beginning with amen. He's claiming an authority that transcends human authority. He's claiming divine authority that is not dependent on the opinion or the authority of any human being. And it's all about belief. Very truly, I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. Has it ever struck you just how strange faith and belief is? If it's true, just prove it to me. Why do you want me to take it on faith? Why do you want me to believe it? When I was becoming a Christian, I was hung up on this because I had been taught that science, truth, rationality, does not, pretend, does not base itself on belief or faith. It's proven. So why, if Easter is true, why if the resurrection is true, why do we have to believe? Why do we have to have faith in it? Back in uh, the dark days of American history, after the American Civil War, a war that was fought, amongst other things, to free slaves, there was a proclamation made in Washington that all the slaves in America were free. Emancipation. The great tragedy was that although that was a true fact, it had come true and it was proclaimed as true and it was legally true for all Americans, Many people in the South, especially slaves in the South, ex-slaves now, didn't believe it. Or if they heard it, could not make it the basis of their life. And they continued to live and feel like slaves, even after it was abolished. The patent was so strong. The belief was abstract. This far-off truth in Washington didn't touch their lives. It was only when they began to believe and put their faith, the foundation of their life, in this new reality, this new truth, that things began to change. Well, that's Christianity in a nutshell. There is a great truth proclaimed by God, enacted by him through the body of Christ, a triumph over death, and we have a choice. Live according to our old lives, the old habits, the old patterns, or begin to live as if that is true. And when we begin to believe in that truth, when we begin to have faith in that truth, when we begin to start making decisions based on that truth, that's when things change. And that's why Christianity is all about belief all about faith in what Christ did. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. Jesus is speaking to Israel. In fact, specifically here in John 6, he is speaking to some of the religious leaders of Israel who are challenging him. Jesus has begun to say some crazy things, in their opinion. He has begun to teach with authority. 
is beginning to be followed by many people. And the leaders are upset, and they're challenging him, trying to figure out what he is, who he is, and they're trying to figure out what connection he has with the truth that they know, the Old Testament. And here, Jesus, by referring to their ancestors who ate manna in the heaven, and comparing himself to that manna, is saying to them, this book that you know and love, Israel, he's talking about the Old Testament, is all about me. The story, the great story of God's rescue of Israel from slavery and death, bringing them through the desert, feeding them and nurturing them and taking care of them until they reach the promised land, that is my story. That is who I am. And I am at the very center of your story. That's what he's saying. He is putting himself in the middle of everything and claiming this incredible authority. More than that, he's saying all the promises in the Old Testament of a Messiah, of someone who would save you, of someone who God would send, that's me. This is why Jesus is so polarizing. He was back then, and he is now. Because he says outrageous things. And either they're true, or he was a nutcase. And you have to decide which. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. What an extraordinary thing to say. He's talking about his physical body. And when he said this, when he first started to say this, it outraged people. Not only the leaders who came to see, but uh, Jesus had a large following. Crowds followed him wherever he went. At one point, he sent out 72 disciples to teach in his name. But when he started saying things like this, that his flesh was real food, that he was the manna, that his blood had eternal life in it, this is when people started to turn away from him until only the 12 disciples were left. Because this is the core. The life that Jesus claimed was in his body, the body that he had brought into the world, the new life. It was his claims about that that caused most of the grief and most of the problems that he had with people back then, and most of the grief and most of the problems that we have now. Verse 52. Then the Jews began to argue sharply amongst themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? You know, Jesus' early audience, they were all Jewish. So he's referring here to the leaders, to those teachers, to the priests, to the ones that saw himself themselves as the holders of the truth of the Bible, the Old Testament. And it freaks them out. It's too visceral, blood and guts. It's too personal. He's standing right there in front of them. It's too direct, too real. It's the sort of thing you can't really argue about. It's, it's not an abstract philosophy. 
It's not even really a teaching. It's an extraordinary claim of truth. You have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Today, even till today, it's an extraordinary thing for anybody to say. So what is he saying? How do we understand this? Are Christians cannibals? Back in the early days, by the way, that was one of the claims made against Christians, that they were cannibals. They ate and drank the blood of their leaders. What is Jesus doing? Well, to help us understand, there is a wonderful story in the Old Testament. This is given to us by the prophet Ezekiel. Ezekiel has a vision. And you get a glimpse in the vision of what Jesus is talking about. This is uh, Ezekiel 37. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. He asked me, Son of man, can these bones live? I said, Sovereign Lord, you alone know. It's an amazing vision. Picture it. A whole landscape littered with dry bones. No hope, only death and dust. Then he said to me, Prophesy to these bones and say to them, Dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you, and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you, and you will come to life. And you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. Prophesy just means to speak as I was commanded. And there was a noise, a rattling sound, and the bones came together, bone to bone. I looked, and tendons of flesh appeared on them, and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, Prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to it, This is what the Sovereign Lord says. Come from the four winds of breath and breathe into these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath entered in them. They came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast army. That's an amazing story. Notice how many times the word breath comes up. The English word breath is a translation there of the Hebrew word ruach, which you can translate as wind or breath or spirit. And wherever you see the spirit of, the God, of God mentioned in the Old Testament, it is that word, ruach. What is the difference between dead, dry bones and living beings? The breath of God. The Spirit 
of God. And so, for example, when God creates Adam, he takes the dust, the earth, and he forms it into a man, but it is only when he breathes, ruach, his spirit into the man, that the man comes alive. God's spirit is life. And where his spirit is, there is life. And where his spirit is not, there is death. And of course, Adam and Eve, they rebel against God. They lose the connection with him, his spirit. And they fall prey to death, as every human being since has done. So what to do? Send a new spirit into the world. Jesus, the word, becomes flesh. How did he become flesh? God's spirit overshadowed Mary, and in her was conceived new life. Jesus, the second Adam. There's the key. Jesus Christ is the new life of God re-entering the world. The breath of God made flesh. So all who put their faith in him, all who consume that new life, receive the Spirit of God, are born again, recreated, subject not now to death, but to eternal life. That's the story. Jesus said to them, I tell you truly, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So now we can begin to understand what Jesus is saying. By the way, when he says, eat my body, my flesh, drink my blood, he demonstrated what that means to his disciples. The Last Supper, where he institutes the Lord's Supper, the body and the blood of Christ. Now that's not Jesus' flesh quivering and dripping blood there. It is bread, and it is wine. But Christ's Spirit is present. That's his promise. And when we come to his table in faith, believing his promises, we receive his Spirit. That's why we come to the table. And that Spirit is the promise of Easter. That spirit is eternal life. That spirit is like the spirit, the breath of God coming into that valley of dry bones and turning a people who are dead into a living people filled with eternal life. So what does that mean if we believe it? If you believe it, if I believe it. Well, it means that death is not the final say of a human life. It means the absolute reign of death is broken. You know, what is the significance of a human being? Our significance is that we bear God's image. 
Bible says God created us in His image. And that is our glory and our significance and our meaning. And the abomination of death is that God's image bearers die and decay. That is why it is so terrible. It destroys God's image in the world. It destroys us. But the resurrection ends that abomination. The resurrection says it is not the end and death has not and will not win. God created us for more than this short life. He created us and filled us with eternal life. His life, eternal And so resurrection restores things to the way they're meant to be. It transforms, and Christ's death did this, the meaning of death. Some of you have heard me say this before. Many people will wear a beautiful cross as a piece of jewelry, as a sign of faith. In fact, the cross is the symbol of Christianity. And it's a beautiful symbol. But it wasn't always a beautiful symbol. The cross was not invented by Christianity. The cross was invented by Roman soldiers. It was a quick way to give people a hideous death. It was a torture device. When the Roman army entered a new province or a new city, they started putting up crosses. And people who would not submit went to the cross. And so the cross was a symbol that said to the world, we are the Romans, and we're here. And if you get in our way, you're going to die badly. It was a symbol of terror and death and pain and suffering and human power. Because if a human being could kill you, and this life is all there is, then you better do what that human being says. What did Jesus' resurrection do? Completely overturned that symbol. No longer a symbol of a torture device, of Roman power, of human ability to deal death. It is now a divine symbol. A symbol of life. A symbol of of a transcendence beyond death that we can put our hope in. Christ's resurrection gives us a promise. This life is not all there is. And therefore, you do not have to be afraid of people who threaten you. And if you look at the 2,000-year history of Christianity, it is the history of people who are not afraid. At their best, of course, there were people who, some of them were afraid. But the ones who did and are doing remarkable things in the dark, dangerous places of the world are doing it because they believe in Easter. They're doing it because they believe there is more to life than what we see. And therefore, they can go as missionaries to dark places. They can stand up and face tyrants. They can choose to be martyrs. They can invest in places where no one else would go and invest in. Because the Christians know there's more. Martin Luther said this, 
If I knew I was going to die tomorrow, I would still plant my apple tree today. Why? Because he knew there was more. The death was not final. The things are unfolding in God's hands. And nothing is wasted. Now just think of the implication if that's true. If we are built for eternity, if there is life beyond death, it means that no relationship, no love, no smile, no conversation, no moment is ever wasted. Because they all have an eternal future. Look around at the people in this room. Every one of them who puts their faith in Jesus is immortal. They are going to be in your life for all eternity. Nothing will be wasted. Everything will be remembered. Everything will be precious and important. And that's why when we greet each other, when we start to smile at each other, we're really saying, how do you do? Beginning eternity together. It means that we are part of a bigger story. That no matter what's going on in your life right now, there is always going to be more. You know, I know because you tell me that some of you, many of you, have problems. We all have problems of one kind or another. It's hard to live in the city. Relationships which you thought were going to solve all your problems turn out not to be great or not to be enough and can still leave you alienated and lonely. Some of you are facing illness and disease in yourself or those that you love. The dream job that brought you to New York that you were so thrilled to get turns out to be a bit of a grind, crushes your joy, perhaps even fills you with dread every Monday morning. You carry secrets that you daren't share with those around you, bills that you can't pay, investments that have failed. Some of you can't sleep, filled with anxiety, dread, all the concerns, all the projects, all the responsibilities that you have to juggle. We are filled with fear and anxiety and dread. And if there is no God, and if there is no Easter, we are right to be filled with anxiety and dread because it's going to turn out badly. And if life is a one-time deal of the cards, if you play them poorly, you're going to lose everything. It's all going to be a waste. What a burden to carry. But Easter did happen. And if you believe it, if you put your faith in it, if you begin to build a life on it, you begin to be like one of those slaves who was freed, but not yet mentally, still was in the pattern and the habit of slavery, still had fear, still was burdened. But as they believed and as we believe, we are set free. New possibilities, new ways of living, 
new ways for a life to have meaning and significance. So I want to end with a challenge. Easter challenge. Good time to do it. Traditionally, in the run-up to Easter, the 40 days before Easter, starting on Ash Wednesday, it's a time of Lent. It's a time when Christians have given up bad habits, given up something that gets in the way of their relationship with God. And it's like a, a gardener trying to cultivate their own garden. You pull out the weeds, not to leave a space, but to create space for new plants, for new things. You pull out the ugliness so beautiful things can grow. You're freeing up space in your life so something else can flourish and begin. Well, that pulling up, traditionally, as I said, are the 40 days of Lent. But now, with Easter and Jesus' resurrection, we begin another period of time. The 40 days from now until Ascension, when Jesus returned to the Father. So I have a suggestion for you. Start something new. If you gave something up for Lent, if you had freed up space in your life, something new could begin. Something that you've never done before. Something, perhaps, that you dreamed of doing years or decades ago, but it was put off. Now is the time to plant it in your life, to cultivate it. Now is the time to begin. Because the promise of Easter is whatever you do, whatever you give or touch with Christ's power will grow. What you pray for in his name will happen. What you get involved in for his glory will flourish. Because there is now new life. Easter says there are no dead ends. Death is not an end, and your life has not ended. Dreary, grinding, and miserable, though you think it might be. Easter says the Spirit of God can put flesh on dry bones. The Spirit of God can grow something new in your life. Thing in your life that you think are completely dead and dormant. So that's my challenge. 40 days. Ascension this year is Thursday, May 14th, about six weeks. If you started a new habit for the next six weeks, what could it grow into in that time? When should you start? We're about to go to the Lord's table where we receive the flesh and blood of Christ. Spiritually, we receive his new life. So our new life can begin to grow. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your forefathers ate manna and died, but he who feeds on this bread will live forever.
everything that you do in his name has a future. Everything you do in faith and belief in Jesus will last. All we have to do is stop building that future. Stop planting those new things. Start those new projects, those new relationships. Give them to Christ and watch it grow. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for the promise of Easter. We thank you for the truth that your life transcends death, that your resurrection proves that life has, uh, that death has lost its power over us. Lord, show us how to believe. Teach us how to have faith and put our faith in you. Teach us, Lord, as a church, how to build on your foundation. We pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen.